0: Well, thank you, everyone. Good to see you here. And um, tonight, for our basic, we're going to talk about the church. Um, last time, we talked about community. And um, we, um, we discussed that, that God always had intended to include all of humanity as his community, his creation. But he had to call out a community to set the example for the rest of humanity and it's out of that basis, which, which becomes Israel, uh, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but then extends into the spiritual uh, descendants of Abraham's faith. And then we see the formation of the church. Um, the church is not inconsistent with Israel. It's not inconsistent with God's community. It It is the continuation of it, actually. And Luke will make the argument throughout the book of Acts that if you want to see a community that's really living out what God always intended with his people, you'll see it in the church. They start out uh, doing their business at the temple in Jerusalem. They uh, continue to uh, preach the Hebrew scriptures. Uh, Jesus is the Messiah, as was foretold in the Hebrew Scriptures. When they bring the Gentiles in, of course, there's an there's a information gap that they have to cross because they don't have that background. But they don't require it, but it does inform who they are. Uh, so, lest we think that somehow the church is, you know, that God abandons Israel and breaks away and creates the church, that, that would be wrong, and that would also be a violation of God's promises But in fact, what you find is you find Israel merging right into this community that will be called the church. Now, in the Gospels, you see Jesus using that term. Um, And it's a term that has to do with the assembly or the gathering, the people, the community. The one that I want to pick out in particular is Matthew 16. Uh, Matthew 16 is perhaps well known to us. And uh, Matthew 16 has been used as the, the basis of the claim that Peter is the foundational pope in Rome or he is the foundational pope uh, of the church. But I, d- I don't agree with that. I think there's, a, I think there's an easier interpretation. And we're going to take a, a look at that. Um, in chapter 16... Of, of Matthew's Gospel, beginning in verse 13, Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi and he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged his disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. This is an extended uh, account of what Mark records in chapter 8. And in Mark's gospel, you, you have this, this idea that, that, that Peter says, we know that you're the Christ. And Jesus says, you're right. But you don't fully understand what that means yet. And then he goes on to tell them what will happen to the Son of Man. And it's not what they expect. Because if they're following the heroic Messiah who's going to come in as the champion and and knock out the Romans or any other oppressors and restore the ancient days of of David and Solomon, then they they need to think again because that's not how it's going to play out. And he wants them to be prepared. Here... Peter makes the confession that Jesus is uh, the Son of God, the the, the, or the the Christ, rather, the Son of the living God. And Jesus commends him for that, but at the same time and tells him why that's important. And then at the end, he tells them not to tell anyone about this. And he uses that word church. Now Note that the, the, the circumstances here are this. He's asking his disciples, his followers. Jesus has followers, and among his closest followers are those apostles. And uh, Simon, the son of Jonah, would be their, um, their best-known representative. Uh, he's the one that often speaks up for them. But they are the closest to Jesus. That is the core foundation of what will become the, um, the church on earth, right there in that little group, this is, found, this is like founding fathers. This is foundational. Okay? This, is even, this is even more essential than that because what Simon says is of great importance. In fact, Jesus, notice, says, you're blessed for making that confession. Because there's a lot of different options. I mean, if you're trying to, when they're saying, okay, well, who is Jesus? People are defining him. They're putting him in a box. And notice what the answers are. Some say John the Baptist. Okay. So maybe he's another one of those preachers of repentance like John the Baptist. Or maybe he's John the Baptist somehow miraculously returned from the dead. Uh, But John the Baptist is just the uh, one who prepares the way. Uh, Maybe he is Elijah. And Elijah, by the way, in the time of Jesus, um, most of the people expected that Elijah, remember, he's the one that is uh, taken up into heaven in the fiery chariot. So Elijah is just waiting for the right moment, and then he's going to return when God is going to renew all things. So maybe some are thinking that this Jesus is Elijah, or maybe he's one of the other prophets. But when he pins them down and asks them, who do you say that I am? They give the declaration, you're the Christ. And Simon is the one who speaks up and says that. And Jesus declares him blessed. Because flesh and blood has not revealed that to him, but his Father in heaven. He's acknowledging that Peter has affirmed something that he has to know and understand at a spiritual level. At a level where of faith. Because how else does Peter know this? He's seen the miracles, he's seen things. But God's given him the opportunity to see that and to witness that. And even still, there were others who saw that and witnessed that, and they ascribed it to the work of the devil. But Peter recognizes that this has to do with God, and this Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus then says to him, now notice he's called him, um, uh, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. He doesn't use the term Peter. We're used to calling him Peter, but his real name is Simon Bar-Jonas, which means son of Jonah. Um, Now Jesus says, you are Peter, and upon this rock I'll build my church. Now what we don't hear in English is this wonderful, wonderful alliterative wordplay that Jesus uses there. He says, you are Petros, and on this Petra, I will build my church. You're Petros, and upon this Petra, Petros Petra. What he's doing there is he's using two words that have to do with with rock, okay, or stone. Now, you think about it. We have a lot of different words that have to do with the reality that we call stone. You can call it. You could call it earth, you could call it rock, you could call it stone. By rock, you could mean one single rock of the kind that you could pick up and throw or the kind you can put in your pocket. You could mean a gemstone or by saying rock, you could mean the layer of rock that's underneath the earth that once you're drilling down into the, into the ground and you hit rock, you're going to have to have something powerful to get through it. Petros and Petra are the same way. Petros would be like a pebble or a stone or something, you know, a single rock, maybe a brick. A Petra would be, would be rock in general. Uh, that, now, that's not, you can't be dogmatic about all that. But I think this is where Jesus is going. He's saying, okay, you, what you've just done there, Simon Barjona, you, this, this confession that I'm the Christ, that means, let me, let me paraphrase, he's saying that means you're a living stone. And it's with living stones like you that I'm going to put down the foundation of my church. And Jesus is talking about a spiritual building. He uses the word for constructing a house, for putting together a structure. And He says, I'm going to build something out of this. Again, now Jesus will tell Pilate later that his kingdom is not of this earth. It's not tangible. It's not made out of, bricks. It's not made out of stone or wooden beams. It doesn't have a location. You can't say it's here. You can't say it's there. So all of this building is metaphorical. Likewise, the idea of the keys are metaphorical. They represent authority. They represent permission that in this church, Christ is going to grant his disciples some measure of authority, the ability to do things. And that's going to By giving them that authority, that's going to mean that the power of hell will not prevail over God's mission in the church. Now, okay, that that all sounds good. How how do I defend this? Why why is this not just some moment of the institution of authority to make Peter one single ruler? Well, it's because of this. This idea of Peter being a rock, And on this rock, I build my church. That that notion of the foundation is not uncommon in Scripture. In fact, if we go back a few chapters to Matthew 7, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, I I think this is very uh, illustrative, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus talks about his kingdom, he talks about the kingdom of God and how you enter into it. Uh, he preaches the Sermon on the Mount. It starts in Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 6. He talks about the way that people ought to behave, the way people ought to do things. That if you're going to follow him, you have to go further than just an outward show of religion like the Pharisees. That what you have to do is you have to let this, this word penetrate to your heart and change you and change the way you live. And to sum it up, the last line in his sermon, and it's an excellent sermon, uh, is... He says, okay, you know, he's kind of wrapping it up in verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Meaning it's a good solid foundation. And then when uh, the strong winds come, when the bad weather comes, that house stands. And anybody who hears his words and does not put it into practice is a foolish man who builds his house on shaky ground. All right, the, uh, that is the way to end a sermon. You've heard it, now if you do it. If you do it, you've built a house on a rock. What if in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is reinforcing that idea and he says, Peter, what you're saying right there, that's taking this teaching and putting it into practice because Peter has made a very important statement that if he lives it out and puts it into practice, That could be foundational. It's consistent with Matthew 7. It's also consistent with 1 Corinthians 3. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul will talk about the... uh, He'll use this metaphor. Like I said, it's not uncommon in Scripture. But he'll use this image of building and of foundations. In 1 Corinthians 3... uh, Let's start in... um, Verse 4, he says, when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What then is Paul? We're servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He's saying that Jesus then becomes the foundation. What is Peter's confession? What is Peter's statement? That Jesus is the Christ. Peter himself could not become the foundation of a church. But his confession that Jesus is the Christ could be the foundation. Because if we are saying that Peter himself is the foundation. Then he's inconsistent with uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 3. That's a contradiction. Now Peter could be one of the stones that makes up that foundation, because we find that metaphor. Look in Ephesians 2:20. Uh, in Ephesians, uh, again, a letter of Paul, and then we got one more, a bonus. Uh, in Ephesians, chapter two, verse 20. Uh, go back to 19, he says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now there's there's a little bit of wiggle room in the metaphor, but it's still going to stay consistent that Christ is the most important part of that foundation. You might have other stones... But Christ becomes the cornerstone. And a foundation is a foundation. The individual stones themselves do not make the foundation, but you can add them together. Now again, don't stretch the metaphor too far, but you can see here that there's a consistency that what is the foundational uh, teaching, principle, power, source, structure for the church is Jesus Christ. That the living Jesus becomes the one who is the, is the pattern. And by the way, the cornerstone is your most important stone in, in ancient building. Now, even in modern building, I suppose. But especially in ancient building, you had to get things set off just right. I've been working on my, uh, uh, my, well, the house I grew up in with my father. And um, along the way, they're, they're building on a new section And uh, lo and behold, if the uh, house is not completely square, and the reason it's, and boy, that's creating all kinds of problems. We're we're making adjustments for it, but one of the reasons that it's not completely square is because when the people came in to put the bricks in for the foundation, they weren't square. And because they weren't square, the walls aren't square. And because the walls aren't square, then the roof's not square. So you have to make adjustments along the way if that foundation is not square just and true Uh, the one that that I really appreciate is 1 Peter 2 okay in 1 Peter 2 this is Peter himself Uh, this is Peter himself mentioning this and if you think about what Jesus would have said to him that day he made the confession Uh, in uh, 1 Peter 2 verses 1 through 10 Peter now is that teaching apostle? He's that apostle who is teaching. He's 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 building up a second generation of the church, other disciples, disciples in Gentile lands, disciples uh, uh, throughout the the twelve tribes of the of the um, diaspora. Um, he says in chapter two. Oh, sorry, I've got I've got James on the brain there. Uh, the uh, Yeah, here we go. Yeah, the churches in Asia, rather, in Asia Minor. He says, put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house Here's the image of building. This is coming from Peter himself, that he's saying all of you disciples are like, are like the stones that build up a temple. You're like living stones, if you can imagine it, and you're being built up. But the cornerstone, the foundation, is Christ. And very closely associated that, within would be the teaching of the apostles. Take a look with me at Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, uh, one of the things that we're told about the church. And by the way, Luke is is probably writing to a, um, well, he's writing to all of us, but uh, there's uh a there's a sense in which Luke is passing this on to later generations of Christians. Maybe those who were not necessarily around or did not witness these things firsthand. But he wants them to know whoever this Theophilus is and anyone else that may read this. I'm sure he intended for much more than Theophilus to read this. But he's saying to them, you know, you need to know that the things that you've heard and the stories that you told are true. And here's the recording from the, uh, the eyewitnesses. And so in Acts chapter 2, one of the things that needs to be said is uh, chapter 2, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, it, you know, okay, let, let's, let's, let's do a little bit of questioning there. Then. Apostles' teaching, what's that? Is that some sort of alternate gospel? Not at all. The apostles' teaching would be the gospel. Why the apostles' teaching? Why does that matter? Well, who did Jesus have around him all the time? He had the apostles'. They were the ones who witnessed this. They're the ones who, where, where do these stories come from? Where do these accounts come from that Luke is gathering? Who who are those that write the letters? Peter writes a letter. He says, you're living stones. You're coming to the chief cornerstone. That's Christ. Yeah, it makes you wonder if he'd been living with that for a while, if he'd been thinking, you know, I remember all those days ago, all those years ago when Jesus said to me that I was the the, the, a stone that was going to be the foundation of all of this—that I was going to be part of that building up. So he gets that that stone metaphor, and he gets that name Peter. His name's Simon Barjonas. Where does Peter come from? Uh, I, you know, it makes sense that you know Peter's basically calling, or that Jesus is calling him Rocky. You know, he's like, "Yeah, Rocky Barjonas. You know, that's who you are. You're, uh, you're, you're, you're." Sh- you know, you're Stone Cold Simon. That's who you are. and, you know, he's just, and he's, But he's using that. He's using that to say, look, those who can make this confession, that becomes foundational. It's foundational to who you are, and it'll be foundational to who the church is. Uh, this isn't the investment of Peter in some sort of special office. But Peter becomes representative of all of those who can make that confession And then they become that assembly, that church, that congregation that is empowered and and situated uh, just and true on the foundation that is Christ, that even the power of evil then cannot stand against it. There's another interesting thing here that Jesus says that I think is worth mentioning. That uh, the church here, as Jesus pictures it, is able that, that, well, Notice that he doesn't say you will be able to withstand the gates of hell. He says the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against my church. Gates aren't typically thought of as offensive weapons. You don't attack people with a gate. Um, you know, there might be some bizarre story out there of that happening. These days you can find anything. But that does isn't typically what happened. A gate is meant to keep people out. It's a defensive weapon. Hell is wanting to keep its captives. Hell is wanting to keep its uh, prisoners. But the church is on this mission of Jesus to free them from the power of hell, to bring them into being disciples. That when they can say, when others can say too, yes, Jesus is the Christ. He's the son of the living God. We can put his words into practice. We can obey him. There's freedom in that. We've been set free. We've been called to our greatest purpose in doing so. Uh, and so that binding and loosing with the keys is not just about making you know, official decisions. It's about setting people free with the truth about setting people free with a truthful community. And and by the way, I think one of the things that the church does as that living temple is that we're, we're not simply people who say, yeah, we're all for truth and truth is great, and we leave it at that. But when we speak true words and when we speak the truth about God and about one another then we become the truthful community that reminds one another. So that when, when, you know, when evil affects us and afflicts us and we say, I'm lonely, I'm forgotten, I'm nobody, I'm nothing, it's in the truthful community of the church that we hear, no, 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 you're one of God's children and you're loved and you have a purpose and God made you and God has something in store for you that you are eternal. You have the image of God in you. Now, when those things get spoken in a truthful community, we remind one another of these things. When we grieve as a community, the truthful community says, Ah, yes, we grieve, but we don't grieve like those who have no hope. We have hope because we know that our cornerstone died, but he was risen, and he is risen, and he's exalted, and he rules. And now he rules not only over this world, but he rules over death. See, it's in that truthful community then that we get reoriented, not an alternate to the world of facts that's out there. Often the world that's out there is the world that's lying to us. It's in the church that we hear the truth. I really love C.S. Lewis's statement, and it, it becomes the uh, title for the play about his life that he says, uh, these are just the shadow lands. Real living has not yet begun. And what he was doing was he was reversing the idea, reversing the notion that somehow this is real life and heaven is sort of our pie-in-the-sky fairy tale of uh, what it's supposed to be like where we've got a mansion just over the hilltop and you know sunshine and roses, golden slippers and harps and all that. No. He says... Where we're heading is to, it's reality 2.0. It's even better than what's here. It's more intense and more real, and it's just and true, like we haven't even experienced here, that this is just a shadow. And so the goodness that we experience in the truthful community is just a taste of what is to come. And by the way, we'll get into that in future talks about the basics and this is where we're going to rely a lot on Peter's second message to believers uh, where he talks about what is to come and then he reels us back in and he says, if that's what we're waiting on, then what should we be right now? But I hope this gives you some, some basis to think about what the church is. That We have a lot of images for the church, but one of the best ones, one of the most profound is that we, are this, we ourselves are this structure, that, that we are living stones that make up, the temple of God. In Corinthians, uh, one last thought real quick. In Corinthians, uh, when, when Paul says, you are the temple of God. And anyone who destroys that temple, uh, you know, basically watch out. Okay, what he means is all of you together are the temple of God. Y'all are the temple of God. That's what ye means in King James. He says, all of you. So that unity that we have, that togetherness, that oneness that we have, but it's not a oneness that can be found in Paul or Apollos or Peter. He's even mentioned in 1 Corinthians. It's none of that. It's a oneness that only really truly is found in the one true foundation, Jesus Christ. Without that, we have no real unity. Now he says if you can get that oneness and hold it together, then you're putting God's temple together. So that's something to think about as well. Well, I hope this gives you some notion. Uh, In future uh, episodes, we will talk about kind of what this church's mission is and what it does and and how we practice this truth together in the things that we do when we come together and when we assemble and when we fellowship and what it means to minister to one another. But I thank you for your attention tonight. Uh, Right now we're going to sing this song that Todd has selected, If You Need to Partake of Communion. That's been prepared in room 100, so let's stand and let's sing together.